I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. We are in for such a beautiful episode today. My guest is Ronnie Robinson. And Ronnie, although she is not a treating professional in the field, she has written a really incredible book called Out of the Pantry, A Disordered Eating Journey. And it is amazing. Ronnie talks about her experience for 30 years having binge eating disorder. One of the reasons why I asked Ronnie to be a guest is because so many people say, I have had this eating disorder for so long, I it's too late, can't get rid of it now. Ronnie started her eating disorder when she was nine years old. And 30 years later, she started her recovery process. It is an unbelievable story and something that everybody needs to hear. I, as always, am going to say I'm not going to go too much into this because I talk too much in the episode. So we're just going to get straight into the episode, but I really hope you enjoy it. All right, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. We have a beautiful guest who is on our program today. First, I would just like to say welcome, Ronnie Robinson. Welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you, and obviously I'm having a little trouble with my words this morning, which is why, Ronnie, I'm going to turn it over to you. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are. I want you to talk a little bit about your book, and we're going to get into it as the interview continues. Okay. Well, I live in Pennsylvania, um, 52. I am a uh, 23 years, happily married with two growing, almost grown up children, 18 and 21. I wrote a book about my uh, eating disorder and my subsequent recovery for uh, 30 years, um, which seems so crazy to me because that's over half my life, right? For 30 years, I was a compulsive overeater and binger. I didn't know I was. And, and during that time, I also went through a fun, abusive um, marriage at the beginning. Um, but now I'm very, very happily married. I'm also, I've, I've been a writer for many years. This was my first book, Out of the Pantry, that just came out in August. I'm also on, on hiatus right now because of COVID, but a spin instructor as well. Ronnie, 
one of the many reasons why I'm having you on the show today is, as you said, you had your eating disorder for 30 years. I have so many clients who have had it even less than 30 years and still say to me, it's been too long. It's never going to end. There's no way to recover. And when I read your book, I thought we need to tell this story because you can recover at any point, any point in your life. And I also really wanted you to talk about the fact that, like you said, you didn't even know that you had an eating disorder. So I'd like you to speak a little bit to that. And before you do, I just want to say the name of your book is Out of the Pantry, A Disordered Eating Journey. And Ronnie, as I said to you last night, your writing was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. So speak a little bit about what it was like to start to to go 30 years before finding recovery. Uh, well, um, to be honest, I I mean it started when I was nine and ended right around um before I turned 40. Um I I really just thought I love to eat and not to, you know, it's a terrible word to use. I, I just thought I was a pig. Um and, and that was it. I just loved I I couldn't explain it. I just had this desire that I couldn't name or there was, to me, there wasn't necessarily emotion involved. I just had this thing inside me that just controlled me and just made me want to stuff my face with enormous amounts of food. And I don't mean eating carrots and, you know, celery sticks, you know, it's mostly junk food. Um, and I would just eat norm- enormous amounts. Um, I was beyond full most of the time. I had that had no hunger and fullness had no um, no place in my life. That didn't matter. I was just driven to keep stuffing my face. Um, I did all kinds of you know ridiculous things like you know eating out of trash cans and other people's plates and plates in the sink and you know um, all this strategic eating so nobody, you know, nobody could see me. Of course, none of this. I ate normally in front of other people and then just did all this binging um, on my own. And to me, that was just my life. I mean, I started at nine. That's what I did. That was just me. And I had no idea that anybody else did it. I didn't know there was a name for it. Um, You know, back when I was growing up, there was the main eating disorders were anorexia and bulimia. So I certainly wasn't starving myself and I wasn't throwing up, although I did try because I would feel so sick sometimes and I just couldn't make myself do it, which in hindsight is probably a good thing because that would have been even more trouble. I didn't know that there was an eating disorder. I just thought I just really ate tons of food and I did it in private. And um, yeah, it just went on and on and on. And that was just me. Can you speak a little bit to some of the things you talk about in the book, which is, and by the way, I want to be very clear. This is not blaming anything. It's not blaming the family system. It is not blaming the way your family had food in the house, but there were some contributors that, you know, like your mom was hiding cookies and things from you. There was not a lot of emotional connection in the family. Is there anything you can speak to that you want to say about that? 
I would just say that um, to me, the my mom hiding the food and me not challenging it was um, just a part of the family dynamic in the house. My father was very domineering um, and loud and my mother was very meek and she didn't, um, she would maybe try to fight him, but always would back down because my father was one of those types of people who was never wrong ever. He was impossible to be honest. So what I saw in front of me was you just, you know, you might have questions, but you ultimately just say, okay, you know, that's the way it is. Cause that's what my mother modeled. So when she had cookies from me, I asked her, she denied it. And I thought, okay, you know, much like had, you know, been shown to me. I wanted to make a comment about something. When you use the term, okay, and I'm, I'm mimicking your voice a little bit, that sing-songy like, okay, that is similar to, there is a, a very well-known acronym in the eating disorder world where clients always say, I'm fine, I'm fine. And we always say, and excuse me for younger listeners, fine is means fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. So when you said, okay, you were swallowing all of this emotion, insecurity that may have come up about your mom hiding food, emotions you had. And I I think the sing-songy tone that you just said brought me back to my childhood where prior to my eating disorder, I was known as the quote unquote, I'm fine girl. Everyone used to be like, oh, she's so cute. I'm fine. And inside I wasn't. And so that's what you're okay kind of brought up for me. So I just, I just wanted to comment on that. Yeah. You know what? That's so funny. Cause I, I didn't even realize how I said it had any meaning. So it's really interesting that you bring that up and you're right. That's exactly what was going on. However, I was so young, I couldn't put a name to what was going on. Um, and yes, the fact that we were, that there was no, the house was very cold. There was not a lot of bonding and connection. And that's still the case now. That was my normal, right? What could I have to compare that to? I did go to friends' houses and I definitely saw more loving interaction. And I was like, oh, you know what? I wish so-and-so, you know, were my parents. But other than that, this was my life and that's all I knew. And it didn't um, occur to me until I was in therapy, you know, at age 40 and 41, that this was all dysfunctional and that this is what caused my eating disorder, that I turned to food for my love and my my unconditional love and the, the comfort and just the, um, the uh, yeah, I mean, just like the, the feelings of love that I did not get in my house, but that I couldn't articulate then. Um, and I didn't even know what was going on because again, that was my life and they weren't like beating me. It was, they just weren't lovey dovey people in the way that I needed. So yeah, I mean, I just, I had no idea. And that's why, um, you know, thank God for therapy, um, which I really credit for the biggest, biggest part of my recovery. It also makes me think of when you say, you didn't even know that you were struggling from an eating disorder. You talk about in the book, and this is so common, you presented as the athlete, the person with all the friends, this good student. Like, 
externally, nobody would have questioned because of your presentation in life. And that also is so common where people get missed. Nobody sees that they're suffering. And if you were raised in an environment that didn't invite that kind of dialogue, you don't, just like you said, you didn't know any other way except, and and it's, it must have been very powerful to come to this realization at 40. Yeah, it was, um, it was huge. It was absolutely huge. And um, I describe in the book, probably the, the biggest breakthrough that I had was in therapy when um, my therapist did a guided imagery with me. Okay, everybody, you have to see me. I've got my hand up right away. So so in case you don't know, I'm always told to raise my hand if I want to interrupt because I always want to interrupt. And I can't, I, as soon as you started saying the biggest impact, because I was talking to my producer prior to this recording and I was like, I want to read the guided imagery that, that Ronnie talks about because it was so powerful. And by the way, this also, is a pretty common guided imagery that people don't just aren't exposed to. And I said to her, I was like, do you think if I read the whole thing that people are going to get bored or lose their concentration? She's like, yeah, you can't read the whole thing. Talk about the guide. I'm sorry. I also get very excited about things. So anyway, keep going. Guided imagery. I'm so flattered that you are excited about it. She um, basically, and this therapist was probably close to my mother's age um, and might have actually even, you know, but they both had short haircuts. They both had red hair. So interestingly enough, and she was the warmest, you know, even just as a therapist, she was so lovely and so validating and just so warm and fuzzy. And I felt so, I felt comfortable with her from minute one and um, she was wonderful. And she was the one who helped me really dig into my past and ask me questions and helped me kind of put two and two together, which led me to find out that I had a dysfunctional home. So anyway, one of the things that she did with me was this guided imagery. And she um, had me close my eyes and sit on a couch, very comfortable and relaxed. And she just had my breathing slow down. And Um, my eyes were closed and she had me, you know, picture, um, um, just being outside. There was a path and there were trees and, uh, she, you know, it was a beautiful day and she had me walk along this path. And then I would, I came up to a tree and sitting at the bottom of the tree was a young version of me. It was little Ronnie, so to speak. And there I was. And she said, so you see little Ronnie and you go over to her and what do you say to her? And that was never, you know, anything that I would have possibly thought of or knew I needed or anything. And, you know, basically, um, I, I think I like thought for a few seconds and I pulled little Ronnie in a hug and stroked her back and her hair. And I just told her, I love you so much and you are beautiful and you are smart and you are enough as you are. And, um, 
I love you unconditionally and you are so worthy and you are so deserving of all good things. And, you know, um, you can do anything you want in your life and just all these wonderful supportive things that I didn't even realize that I never heard and that I needed to hear. And so I was bawling and I was really, you know, in this, this vision, this imagery and, you know, feeling this little girl in my arms and just telling her all these things um, about how loved she was and how special she was. And uh, gosh, that was just so pivotal and so huge. Like I said, I, I didn't even know I needed to hear that. Um, and I, you know, and to provide that. And that really um, was really helpful to healing the little girl, right? We all, you know, most people, you know, I think who have um, any addiction really um, have that child in them that was never taken care of, loved, or, you know, what, whatever it was and um, whatever trauma they went through and just told these things about how special they were and how loved they were. Um, so yeah, it was hugely powerful and really helped me to see, oh my gosh, I had been missing that. And I, and I didn't know that, um, until right then. And that's what really got me on my way to recovery because we had figured out what it was that was missing and missing in my life as a child, you know, throughout my whole childhood. And then I just provided that to myself and not like, you know, the snap of a fingers and I'm like, Oh, I'm recovered now. But it really, really helped really from there getting the ball rolling to, you know, it was recovering, you know, helping little Ronnie heal. And then, in, and then I could start as an adult to just process all of that, um, what went on and how the food connected. And then I learned that I, those, those things didn't need to be connected now at age 40. I did not, as a child of nine, I had no um, coping mechanism or defense mechanism um, to kind of deal with what I was lacking in my life. Um, but now I'm older and I didn't need to eat over that, I want to say trauma that happened or the, 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 my, my life, the way it was, I didn't need to, as an adult, I did not need to continue eating over these things that happened, you know, 30 years ago. Um, I also want to point out that this is what happens when people are struggling with eating disorders. Really important information is rising in our bodies or in our hearts or in our mind. And we say, no, 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 push it down with either binging or purging or restricting or exercising. And for you and for many people, it resulted in a first marriage that was very unhealthy that you knew was unhealthy. And instead of dealing or processing or working through the, the, the dysfunctional marriage, anytime something came up, you turned to behaviors, pushed it down and stayed in this marriage. Yeah. A lot of emotional eating happens then too. I basically was perpetuating what happened at home into this other marriage. Oh, okay. The dominating, you know, ridiculous 
um, husband with a meek wife. I mean, I really had doormat like stamped on my forehead. Um, I never, because I didn't get um, the, the loving and support and the, hey, do you need to talk, you know, kind of thing in my house. I had no self-esteem. I had no self-confidence, no sense of self. I had no dreams for the future. Um, it was just whatever is handed to me. Okay. You know, and I just accepted it. And I, and I, like you said, I think deep down, I always questioned how he treated me and how he acted and just our relationship as a whole. But I never had the, the inner strength and the belief in myself that um, I could get out of this or I could do better than this or I didn't deserve this. And again, this is what happens. People that are actually pretty in touch with their feelings. People that are struggling with eating disorders are actually very intelligent people who know something's not right. They just, like you said, don't feel like they have a voice, don't feel like they have the self-esteem to lead, whatever it is. And so imagine if you, even prior to getting married, had stopped using behaviors and listened that this was not a healthy relationship. And I say this not just for you, for anybody who's listening that's struggling with an eating disorder. What is it that you're preventing to happen that actually, even though it'll be difficult at the beginning, in the long run is going to, I hate to use the expression, but it's going to set you free from the misery that you're pushing down with behaviors. I want to ask what it was like for you. Now, you and I discussed this. So you have been through different transitions in your recovery process. And it's so powerful. One of the things that you did, and I want to be incredibly respectful for anybody who finds a theory that works for them. You and I talked about that in the book, you say that you did OA. Which, by the way, for me, again, please, anybody who who it works for, I mean no disrespect. I do not love a model that adds restrictions onto eating disorder recovery. No flour, no sugar, no this, you know, using sponsors, things like that. What you did, though, was amazing. You took what worked for you, Ronnie, and, and I hope I'm, I'm being very respectful to you when I say this, you took what worked for you, the community, because by the way, community is important. The accountability, the, whatever it was you took, you then also discarded what wasn't going to work for you. You worked with a therapist to go to the emotional, you know, what was happening emotionally. You eventually went to intuitive eating because you know a life deprived of sugar and wheat and whatever for you was not what you were looking for. So can you explain, I don't know, maybe I just explained it all for you. Just the whole process, because you go from a very rigid model, which is an eating disorder is rigid to begin with, to intuitive eating, which is really powerful. Well, I can definitely embellish on on what you said. I mean, basically, uh, 
when I learned that I had an eating disorder, which just came from an aha moment, watching television one night and hearing the words compulsive overeater. And for some reason at that moment in time, and maybe five years prior, it would have went right over my head. I went, huh. And uh, I went on my laptop and I Googled um, and I immediately came to uh, Overeaters Anonymous. Uh, And I remember looking at their website and at the time it very prominently said, are you one of us? And it had you know, whatever, 15, 20 questions. Do you do this? Have you experienced that? Da, 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 da. And I was like, yes, yes, I do this. Yes, I do that. Yes, I do that. And I thought that was the big aha moment when I realized that I have an eating disorder, like, holy crap. And that was really emotional for me um, on many levels. One, I realized there was a name for what I was experiencing for 30 years. Um, second, it was emotional in that uh, I realized that it was a mental illness, right? And unfortunately, and especially back then, there's so much stigma to mental illness. And I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm mentally ill. Um, but that those things, oh, and also too, the other big thing, and I don't even, they're all different weights and, you know, as far as the effective, I remember thinking, there's a website for this? Other people? do this? Like so many that there's a website for it. I couldn't believe it because I thought it was just me, you know? Um, I had no, you know, I couldn't believe that it was such a thing that there was a website devoted to, and a group like devoted to it. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. So I sort of attacked it and I don't mean to make light of this at all. To me, it was like somebody told me I had cancer and I was going to fight like hell to now that I had a name for it and it was a thing, I was going to fight like hell to get rid of this. So for me, it was, you know, from reading, it was from their their site and doing some of the Googling, it was Overeaters Anonymous um, and therapy and also reading books about um, about compulsive overeating and binging and reading books, um, you know, of people who um, had eating disorders and recovered. And also being a, a writer for many years, I um, this didn't happen until about six months or so later. I started a blog and I wrote it anonymously. And it was a great place to just brain dump all these, you know, ridiculous things I used to do and, you know, things about holidays and counting calories, even though I would get into like five, 6,000. It was just all these things I did. And um, and there were, I found a community there. You know, the word community was like you said, so important. And um, so with OA, I, you know, they say you should go to five meetings to find the one that's comfortable for you. And uh, the first, I think three that I went to were in big rooms with tons of people and I didn't feel comfortable at all. It was just too much. Um, The fourth meeting I went to was much smaller and there was maybe a 12 to 15 people. And this one now was getting much, much warmer. And I remember we, uh, people were sharing and I was relating to the shares, which shocked, you know, again, just, you really feel so isolated and so alone in your eating disorder that nobody could possibly understand. And so this whole world of, oh my God, there's other people like me was still, really, um, affecting me. Um, 
And, uh, you know, they, they, I think we, we stood up together and we said like an OA prayer and it included, um, welcome home. And that just really hit me. Cause I was like, you know what? I am home. These are my people. I found my people. And it did feel like home to be understood and to know that every single person there, no matter what sex they were or um, their socioeconomic status, um, their size, their shape, everybody got me. And it was overwhelming. And uh, I still decided that I wanted to try one more meeting. And it was that last one that was even a little bit smaller that I knew was right for me. And that's how I started the meetings. And, uh, you know, and I read all about it and I read the steps and so forth. And uh, I went to meetings for about a year. And within about, uh, I guess, after about six months or so, I I obtained my abstinence um, right away. Because as soon as I was like, oh my God, I have an eating disorder. Like I said, again, that awful analogy, like I have cancer. I'm like, that's it. And I was on the pink cloud of, the abstinence, right? Because I was, I really cut down. I stopped binging. Um, I ate normal amounts of food. Um, and the, the thing in a way, I saw other people who were, um, you know, it's very spiritually oriented and a power higher than themselves and so forth. The first step is recognizing that you are powerless around food and that your life is unmanageable. So it was like, yeah, that's me. Um, and everything else just didn't feel right to me personally. Um, I am a, a spiritual person, but I, I just, I, again, no disrespect to OA, but um, I just didn't buy into the praying to your higher power to release you of the need for food um, or to tell you what to do. Like, it just didn't sit right with me. To me, I was like, you know what? I think therapy is going to be the thing that helps. So, you know, one of the things they say in OA is take what you want and leave the rest. So I just took that first thing. Step one, I was powerless over food. My life was unmanageable. And that's that's all I needed. And I, you know, I respect people who found that OA work for them. But as you said, um, I didn't want, I knew I didn't want to give up food, um, certain food groups. I that didn't feel like a freedom to me and having to, I still think having to call your sponsor and work through these steps was like a, a way. And I could look back, obviously right now I have a much bigger perspective of it, but to me that was still like white knuckling in a way. And that wasn't really freedom from why the eating disorder was there to begin with. And if I feel now, if you are truly healed, you don't need to white knuckle and you don't need to like grab your tools and go, oh my God, I'm in this moment and I'm dying to eat. What can I do? That happens at the beginning of recovery because you're still, you know, working through things, but you eventually get to a point where you don't need tools. It's you're, you're healed. You don't, those urges are gone and you, you shouldn't have to rely on crutches, you know, to get you through. Um, but OA provided for me, um, like I said, the huge amount of just really shock. And um, I, not to say misery loves company, but to just be in these rooms with people and be like, oh my God, I'm not alone. And all these people do that. Um, 
to have these crazy thoughts and obsessions with food um, that I did. So therapy, which, and I had two therapists, the first one who did the guided imagery and helped me really dig into my childhood. She was terrific. And I, I probably went to her for a good year or so. And then I went six months. I thought I was good and I was fine. I was still having some compulsive eating behaviors and thoughts, um, nothing horrible, but I knew I needed to still do some work. And then I went to a second therapist who I just hit the jackpot with, a wonderful man, and he was a recovered compulsive overeater. So I'm so fortunate that I just found really great therapists because I know that people often don't find good therapists and it's really a shame. Um, And he helped me further learn about food and that he's, Ronnie, you're putting the spotlight on food. That is not where the spotlight goes. The spotlight is on people and relationships and conversations. I mean, I would be at a party and I had no interest. I would perfunctory, hello, and how are you? How are your kids to my friends? And then all I could think about was going back to eating. Where is the food table? And strategically getting myself in front of the desserts without the same people who were there five minutes ago seeing me again so they knew I kept eating. Um, you know, and just my life was really revolved around food and where can I get it? How can I get it? How can I get it without people seeing me? And people were not, and relationships were not my first order of business. It was food. Um, so this therapist really helped me get through that. And, uh, yeah. And just the, um, reading books was great. And I think that's what helped me get to the intuitive eating because I read books about it. And I was really scared because I didn't, can I trust myself? Can I trust my body? After all these years of completely ignoring my body, my body's cues of hunger and fullness, how was I now supposed to trust myself and trust that my body could tell me when it was hungry? And it was this huge leap of faith that I took, um, you know, but I read a lot about it and what it meant. And I, I wanted that. I really wanted that. And it took some work and, um, and yeah, I got there and it was, um, it's just so freeing to, you know, I'm listening to my body and you know what, there are going to be days where I overeat and that's okay. Um, normal quote unquote, normal eaters, they overeat too sometimes. And that's okay. Um, the next day you get back to eating whatever it's, you know, if you keep piling up all these overeating days, that's, that's a problem, but, um, eat whatever I want, whenever I want it, listen to my body and, you know, what an amazing thing. And I, you know, if you would have told me that, you know, in the throes of the eating disorder, I would have never believed, I mean, what do you mean you can eat two cookies and be satisfied? That's impossible, you know? But it's great, and um, it's just such, it really is a, a, a freedom and a, a trust that I didn't have that, that now that I have. Yeah. So I, I want to make a comment and then ask questions and whatnot. <laughs> so one of the things that, because uh, I want to get to your book, one of the things that you wrote about in your book is when you met your now husband, Ephraim, the level of communication and honesty and openness that the two of you had or have, excuse me, probably was one of the major shifts unknowingly to you into 
healing yourself, having a partner. In your, and by the way, I'm not saying it's about having a partner. It's about having people in your life that you can have honest conversations with. And what I want to ask you about the book, because you do write a lot. I mean, I visualized you at these parties when you said you would go from room to room to room. I visualized it. Ronnie, was writing the book triggering at all? Because you're very vulnerable and raw in this book. Um, I I can see you. You open the book with, go- and I'm not giving anything away because it's right at the beginning. You open the book with going into the trash and taking out pizza crusts that your daughter threw away. Was this book triggering? Was it healing? Was it a combination? How did you navigate through these really difficult memories? Um, actually, I'm very pleased to say that it wasn't triggering at all. Um, I feel, I, I think I needed to wait a certain amount of time before writing the book. Um, I think for a couple of reasons. One was there's, and if you remember, there was that Oprah, she remember, oh God, God bless her, Oprah and all her, her weight issues. Remember that time where she walked out in her black turtleneck and her black jeans, she pulled out a wagon and I think it had like 60 pounds of lard or something like that. And she was like, this used to be on my body and now it's not. And, and then unfortunately she did gain the weight back and, and yo-yoed, which is so common. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be Oprah. I don't want to have not been recovered enough to be like, hey, look at me, I've done this and then fall right back into it. So that was one reason that I think was in the back of my mind. And second, it was just my security. It, it, it took about four years to write the book. It was off and on, you know, I'd write, I'd put it aside, I'd write, I'd put it aside. But I felt secure enough in my recovery that I was, you know, talking the talk and walking the walk as well. And um, I mean, look, I can't promise that I'm going to stay recovered forever. I hope to God I do. And that is absolutely my intention. But, you know, like any addiction, I know that, you know, there's still a little part that's there and that, you know, it's just waiting to bust through and, you know, and get me in its clutches again. I fully respect that. And I understand that. Um, I hope it never happens. I'm obviously, I'm going to do everything in my power that that's not the case. So writing the book didn't trigger, even though I was really writing, like you said, real, I mean, I don't know how to be except for honest. And I really was writing what, what had happened. And I could feel, I could feel those moments, you know, the holiday, those Christmas, um, the chocolate chip cookies were amazing. And I can just vividly recall even just going around that house in search of these cookies, you know, just looking for that perfect bite again over and over. And I could picture it, but it didn't make me want a cookie. It didn't make me want to eat. It was just more a recounting of what happened and actually me trying to recount it as best I can to make it real to the reader so that you could really be in my head and know um, what I was doing. And if anything too, actually, it was um, a little bit more healing because I continued to learn about myself. I started, you know, to put two and two together in some places. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, like my brother, for instance, who's um, about four and a half years older than me, um, who has no addiction at all. And I thought, my God, we grew up in the same house, the same lack of warmth, lack of, you know, support and love. And 
how did he grow up without an addiction? And I realized just over the years through um, reading and, and so forth that, you know, he had my mother to himself for four and a half years. And he had that, he got to bond with her. And so even though maybe she wasn't loving and warm, it was still that one-on-one attention that a baby needs. And then when I came along, she just didn't have enough for two. And then that's just my hypothesis. I obviously, you know, can't go in her head, you know, and she probably can't, you know, remember that. But I hypothesize that that's the reason my brother didn't end up with an addiction because the, you know, the the real formative years, um, you know, and a baby and how the baby is responded to, he had my mother one-on-one. And I, I think that might be, that's my layman's story for why I think he, he was okay. I want to comment on something that you said, and then I have a question. My comment is, is that as somebody who is recovered, I don't think, Ronnie, that it's ready to bust out any minute, the eating disorder. I, and, and I'm, I, I can't, I'm paraphrasing what you said. You said something like, I'm aware that it's in the back of my mind and any moment it's ready to bust out. I think you, and this is the difference of somebody who's recovered as opposed to somebody who's white knuckling it is there may be thoughts in the back of your mind, certain things, but you have skills, insight, awareness, community, family, your voice. So even if every once in a while it creeps a little bit, I don't think it's going to bust out. I still have the same personality traits that I had when I was struggling with my eating disorder. There are things that heighten my anxiety, but I have enough insight now and obviously the voice to talk. (laughs) And I, I I believe in authenticity and vulnerability that I can I can pay attention and say oh, something is something's percolating. What is it? Who do I need to talk to? Do I need some rest? Do I need self care? Do I need to cry? Whatever. So that's just my thought. That's my thought. No, I appreciate that, and I'd like to agree with you and think that that's right, um, and uh, that so much of me has healed. Um, and that, yes, I have a, my husband's amazing and very loving and very supportive. I have never, um, you know, what you got to before and how big of a change it was for me to have somebody who was so supportive and loving and like my biggest cheerleader and how amazing that was. And, um, that, that, you know, really helped me. And now years and years of it, you know, now layering and layering and layering. Yeah, you're probably right. I would not go back to being a full-blown, you know, an eating disorder. Everybody, there is always particular vulnerabilities. In fact, I had a guest on who is a professional who did start sliding back. There are unexpected things that happen But I think, and again, I always speak from my own experience, so please don't think anybody that I'm saying this is a truth, but I don't think it slowly creeps back in. And I don't think something small would make it bust back in. That's, again, 
everybody has their take on it. Um, I always use the experience when I talk about the fact that I always thought if I ever lost a parent, you would have to like vacuum me off the floor. I would just turn into a puddle of, of dust is a dust puddle anyway. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't survive. And gratefully as somebody who was fully recovered when my father died, I, I got through it. Here I am today, 15 years later, I'm not in a vacuum bag. (laughs) Nobody had to dust me up. I cried. I was sad. I was angry. It was brain cancer. How could this happen? But I, I, I know how to navigate through these things now. My question is, and I'm, I'm aware of the time, but this is, a, this is so much fun, Ronnie. How, well, I know how, because I read it in the book, but talk to me about telling your daughter about your eating disorder. And the reason why I ask that is because before you and your husband sat your daughter down, and I, I can't remember, was she 10? Yes. You thought through some really important questions. Like, am I going to like traumatize her? Am I going to give her ideas for an eating disorder? What's going to happen? Talk to me about that. Because I think parents are frightened to talk to their children about anything that a parent has struggled through or an eating disorder. And I want to say letting, letting your children know that you've had struggles makes you human and allows them to be human. Letting children know about eating disorders, but from a healthy perspective, they're going to find out anyway. So can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, first and foremost, I, of course, was petrified. Um, I have a son and a daughter, and I realize, of course, boys um, can get eating disorders as well, but it's, it, it, I believe it's primarily girls. So I was petrified that my daughter was you know, now genetically, you know, kind of inclined. Can I interrupt one thing? Sure. I I also want to make clear when you just said that your son was younger and you said in the book when he gets older. So it's not just, it wasn't for you just about gender. It was about age appropriateness. And so, okay, go ahead. Yeah. I I had a, um, through the, um, anonymous blogging, I made a lot of connections with people also in eating disorder world and one woman. um, And I don't remember how it started, but she said, you know, your kids are seeing you weighing your food or measuring your food or, you know, being a little quirky um, with my eating habits in recovery in the beginnings of it. And, um, and I thought, oh no, I'm too slick. My, my kids don't they're too busy what they're doing and I'm too slick. They, I turn my back. They don't know. They don't know what I'm doing. And she assured me that they did know and, you know, really encouraged me to speak um, to them, especially my daughter, who, like I said, was 10. And we sort of agreed that that was a good age. So I talked to my husband about it and, oh my God, what are we going to say? And exactly what you said, I didn't want her to now have this idea. Oh, well, I wasn't, I normally really never thought about food in any weird way, but if mommy did it, then maybe that's a good thing. You know what I mean? To encourage it. Like I want to be like my mom or just even give her the idea that there were these eating disorders out there and here's what you do. So it was, it was really scary. Um, But on the other hand too, as this cyber friend had told me, she sees what I'm doing and I need to explain what, 
what it was that I was doing that I needed at the time before I reached intuitive eating was, yeah, I was kind of weighing and measuring portions. I was, I needed to relearn what portion sizes were and, you know, what was healthy amounts to eat. So yeah, we, um, my husband and I sat her down and, you know, I, I can't say for sure she totally got what we were telling her, but I was trying to tell her that, you know, mommy had a problem and it wasn't her fault. It had nothing to do with her whatsoever. I wanted to be sure she didn't think it had anything to do with her, but that, you know, mommy has a, used to have a problem with eating too much food. I also didn't mention it was her grandparents' fault because I did not want to throw them under the bus in any way, shape, or form. Um, I mean, do they know now? Of course, they've read the book and they, they're older. So yeah, they know. But um, at the time, you know, she was this little, you know, and I'm like, I don't need to poison you against, you know, what your grandparents did. And yeah, I was just honest and, and just tried to tell her that it was on a 10-year-old's terms um, what I used to do and that it was, you know, my problem and that I was really working really hard opening the gate for conversation. So if she saw a girl at school who she thought was doing something odd or, you know, heard somebody throwing up in the bathroom, you know what I mean? That I wanted her to be able to come to me and, and talk about it. And also to have her, if she did see me weighing and measuring that this is why mommy's trying to eat healthy and fuel her body and just eat in a more healthful way. I swear to you, like there was something, there was something about this book, Ronnie. I, I was tearful through it. It was, it, it was, it is a great book. And there is something about that image where you write about it in the book, um, pr- probably because I followed the whole story from your childhood, but just the way you held her hand, the way her legs were dangling, the way you held Ephraim's hand, the way it was a complete opposite of what you had grown up with. It was unbelievable. Oh, thank you. And just to say, um, nobody to cut you off, that that was a very conscious decision on my part. I mean, I'm not my mother, thank goodness. Um, I am warm and fuzzy and it was definitely a very conscious decision when I had children that those kids were going to know how special they were and how loved they were. And even at 21 and 18, like I still want to eat them up, you know, like I still want to eat their toes. You know, I know it sounds disgusting, but you know what I mean? Like I just, ugh. And the other, another thing that came from that, which I realized in writing the book was that, so I knew from the therapist that it was my mother, right? That it wasn't my fault and that it was my mother who just wasn't the kind of mom I needed her to be. And I remember thinking while I was writing, like, my gosh, I love my kids ferociously, ferociously. What was wrong with me? that my mom didn't love me that way. Like, clearly there had to be something wrong because wouldn't, it was perfectly natural, right? For me to just love my kids so hard and so much. And then I, and I had to, that was like another, you know, like I think we had said before, this is always a journey, right? And we're always learning. 
And even though I thought I had dealt with everything and knew everything, that was like another thing that popped into my mind. Um, and I thought, wow, you know what? And, and then again, I had to kind of work through that and realize again, there was nothing wrong with me. It was her. And you know, it wasn't wrong with her. That was just her. It wasn't her fault. She wasn't wrong per se. That's just how she was wired. And that was from her childhood probably, right? Just from, you know, and unfortunately, you know, just kind of went on with her that uh, that's just the way she was. And I accept that. And again, just another concept of, of our relationship and her personality and my personality and realizing like just once again, more confirmation for me that it, it wasn't me. I didn't do anything wrong. And that unfortunately they were her issues um, that got put upon me in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I highly recommend the book to anybody. Again, it is out of the pantry, a disordered eating journey. And Ronnie, I loved it. Really loved it. I do have one more question for you that has nothing to do with eating disorders. Before I go there, is there anything else you'd like to add or say or anything that I didn't ask you? No, I don't think so. We covered uh, an awful lot, which I think is I hopefully helpful to those who are listening. And I think just the probably the biggest thing for me, uh, to, to, a message for anybody who's eating disordered is to please go to therapy. Um, and even though you might think, you know what, I'm just, this is a horrible example, but you know what, my father used to beat me, for instance, and you can say, all right, I know that my father beat me and that led to my eating disorder. Well, that's great that you have a starting point, but it is you know, and I don't need therapy because I know that that's what it was, yet they're not recovering. And it's great that you can name it, but it just goes so much deeper than that. And you really need to put in the effort. You need to feel all those feelings, all those feelings that you stuff down that you may not even been aware of, but there's so much that's buried in there by the food, right? You ate the food to just stuff everything down. There's so much feeling an emotion that you need to deal with as a child. And that uh, if you are still, you know, it's never about the diet. It's not a bad diet that you, this diet doesn't work for me, or I can't stick to a diet. It's not you. It's not the diet. It's you needing to heal what happened. And that's what's going to get you through the eating disorder. Yeah, I think that's just my my biggest thing. And I think a lot of people don't want to hear that or want to accept that or put in the time. Look, we all want to snap our fingers and, ah. It's a bit, hence an eating disorder behavior. Right, right. Uh, but it really does take time and energy and it, and it will be hard and it will be emotional. And you are going to have to think about things that you probably don't want to think about, but it's just, it's just necessary. Um, even after, you know, 30 years of it, it was, it was necessary to do that in order to um, find recovery. Well, I want to thank you. And as I said, before we end, I do have one final question. And that question is, Ronnie, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Oh my goodness. 
I think on the bathroom stall would be, you can do anything you set your mind to. And whether that's me in the book describing doing an Ironman triathlon or recovering from an eating disorder, if that's what you want and you follow a, you know, a path and a plan and commit to it, you can do anything you set your mind to. I agree. Very well said. Ronnie, thank you very, very much for being here on the show. It was really quite wonderful having you here as a guest. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for allowing me to be on. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to talking with each and every one of you next week. Take care. Stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.